Heyo, and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandy Miller, and in this episode, I sit down with Sean Watkins to talk about the value of urgency or a sense of urgency. As we have this conversation, I want to name that we talk about specific organizations and people. We don't do this to demonize specific organizations or people, but because the things that Sean talks about in his context are common in many, if not most, white evangelical spaces. In other words, what we talk about isn't unique, but rather pervasive values, practices, and ideologies that exist in white institutions. I think it is also important to name that it is appropriate to critique and engage with communities and people that we love, and that dissonance and discontent don't undo the good and beautiful things that we've received in even in spaces that are messed up. How we do that critique matters, but we critique because we believe that people and organizations can and should do better. So with that, enjoy, and maybe manage your defensiveness in my conversation with Brother Sean Watkins. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Brandy, as always, you know, you're one of my dear friends and mentors, and I love you to life. And so I am grateful for the opportunity to be on here to see you and to talk with you, sir. Uh, it's such a delight. We we don't been through some nonsense together, so it's good to we get have. to be in a, a better place these days, you know? We <laughs> so, have. I think take we, that for what it's worth. We knew of each other digitally um, and randomly at conferences. I think you and I really clicked when we went to Ferguson for the one-year anniversary of Michael Brown's death. Uh, mm-hmm. We went to that conference, Lessons from Black Lives, a Black Scholar was gathering in yeah. Ferguson and you and I both were like we need to be friends yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest has been history yeah yeah it's a life-changing life-changing time out there so absolutely well in so in the broader scheme of things uh for folks who don't know you I would love for people to get to know you a little bit John what does it mean to be you sure uh from Houston born and raised um I'll give the sanitized version then I'll give like the real version so from Houston born and raised uh Dad's a lawyer, mom's a teacher, uh, came to Austin to go to UT and graduated in 04 um, with a Bachelor's of Arts in African American Studies and History. Let me pause there and fill in the gaps. Um, like I said, from Houston, uh, dad's an alcoholic, never been a Christian, and I'm the product of both my parents' second marriages. And so he cheated on his first wife with my mom, divorced her shortly after my sister was born, and then married my mom within a month. Two years later, I was born. And he had an affair again and uh, divorced my mom. And that lady is still my stepmother. It was really difficult for my mom. And so even though, you know, he's a lawyer, he's a part of his own law firm and an alcoholic. We had a massive house in the suburbs. Uh, but when they divorced, my mom took it very hard. And so we moved out of the suburbs and moved into the hood with my grandmother. And my mom began uh, an addiction to crack cocaine that lasted mm-hmm. from the time I was five until the time I was 30. I'm 37 now. And so as you can tell, right, when I'm in a white space and I am trying to gain acceptance and influence and just kind of ownership of the room, dad's a lawyer, mom's a teacher. When I am in a space, um, I think that is ethnically and culturally diverse. And to be honest, I'm talking to black people about the realities of racism in America. I will give both versions. I have upper middle class black parents, but the context in which those values got lived out was the hood. So I love wine. I love jazz. I love classical music. I like Hamilton. I can also spot a crack house a mile away, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have an internal radar when I'm on the freeway. You know, we've been driving for about 75 miles an hour for a minute. I feel like there's a cop somewhere. We should slow down and there go the police, you know? Like, yeah. you can just sense yeah. it. I know which lights you need to run. If you don't run them in Houston, you will be shot. So yeah. um, I kind of have both of those worlds, but I didn't have the language to articulate it. And so I got mm-hmm. to UT, Became a Christian, um, lordship-wise. I'd kind of grown up in church a little bit in Houston, but I think Jesus became a lord, really, through the ministry of InterVarsity. And uh, I'm, I'm an old-school Ivy kid. They grew us in love for God, God's word, God's people of every ethnicity, and God's purposes in the world. And that shaped my life, my thinking, my theology, my ministry even now, my witness even now. And so while I was becoming a Christian in this ministry that was planted to primarily serve black students, um, I also started taking African-American studies classes. And so you had this spiritual awakening for me at the same time I was having this cultural awakening. Mm -hmm. They happened concurrently. And it just, it shaped the course of my life. Graduated and um, ran from God for a year. Didn't want to come on staff. Didn't want to fundraise. Wish I would have listened to myself. Went into some debt, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's not, but it's, the Lord is working. Um, So I came on staff with InterVarsity in 05. Led a ministry for black students that I'd actually become a Christian in a couple years before. Mm -hmm. I led that for five years left came on staff at a black church here in austin hated it came back on staff and uh i stepped into a role where i oversaw ministry to black students in texas arkansas and oklahoma 
Uh, they said no to that role at first because they thought we were doing well. Uh, and then in the span of one year, they lost three black male staff, myself, my best mm-hmm. friend, and a Ugandan staff. And so they called me, asked me to come back. And uh, the week that I said yes, Trayvon Martin was killed in mm. Florida. So I went from being this, you know, random black staff in Texas to someone who was like, oh, having to think nationally and deeply about individual systemic and structural racism in America. And God was faithful. Uh, I started writing some blog posts, got a, a following very quickly. Uh, and then perhaps one of the most brilliant presidents we've ever had in the history of the United States. Uh, he is smarter than everybody else. He knows absolutely everything. Um, he both knew that it wasn't a virus and knew it was a pandemic before anyone else has said. He's just absolutely fabulous. Just really like the greatest president in the history of the nation. He's been attacked more than anybody else. Uh, but really, um, when he came down at Escalator and said all the, the racist things and the misogyny started to come out mm. and we realized 45 was going to be president and you just saw like the white evangelicals flip i don't know if they really flipped it's more like they were that and then mm-hmm. like you know there were no excuses anymore we had seen yeah, the took shootings, the mask off you know we'd seen the shootings we saw the lack of responses we like begged and pleaded for some type of a response and we got blog posts you know mm-hmm. so and then 45 came in and um I just saw InterVarsity uh, just kind of change in a lot of ways. Not the organization, but I think leadership. Because I love the organization as a whole. But, you know, every institution, it goes through changes based on whoever's in leadership. And so I saw them not really deal with their funding issues, not really deal with advocating for women in leadership in a written capacity, uh, and not really define multi-ethnicity, but double down on biblical sexuality. And 81% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, voted for Trump. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just kind of looked around and realized, like, oh, God, I am, I'm, this is no longer the organization that I thought it was. Or I've been mm-hmm. deceived, and they've withheld part of their thinking and theology. And so uh, I left staff with university in 2017. I had been going to Fuller Seminary to work on my master's degree and like every student of color <laughs> in the Sorry. midst of the unarmed shootings of black people in the midst of the election of oh, Donald Trump. What was supposed to be a three-year program turned into a five-year program. I was mm-hmm. taking off quarters, faithful. I cannot do this. We, I haven't had a professor of color. I haven't read an author of color. Mm-hmm. I graduated from Fuller in 2019 with my MDiv. Couldn't find a job to save my life. So I've been at Amazon for the last year <clears throat> in that warehouse, which is kind of doubles as a plantation, depending on your thinking and theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this Saturday is my last day there. Hey, uh, August 3rd. <laughs> yeah, look here. Won't he do it? This uh, Saturday is my last day. August 3rd, I will become the director of training and strategy at Be the Bridge, a Come nonprofit on. that does racial reconciliation, diversity, and inclusion training under the superior leadership of uh, Latasha Morrison. So it's a, a, just a new chapter in a new season. So, uh, so it's good. it's been a journey. I think, uh, Randy, as you well know, uh, trying to decolonize my own mind and my own theology, mm-hmm. uh, figuring out the internal work I need to do to be able to to both heal and recognize where I am on my own journey of healing, which will take a lifetime. And, you know, like James Baldwin said, I'm trying to vacillate between just being in a perpetual state of rage all the time as I look at this yeah. land that I know and love and sometimes want to slap upside their head because the United States is the Florida of the world. And you really don't know <laughs> what to do with that. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, what is y'all doing? This is embarrassing. Good God. Uh, I'm prepared. I am I am going to scream. It's, it's it truly is a lot. Well, and what it sounds like to me in your description of your story and your experiences is while you may have an MDiv and be a highly educated black man, it seems like the PhD that you have is in white evangelical Christianity, theology, yes. and nonsense. Absolutely. And so as we've been walking through this podcast, we've been thinking about white supremacy and reclaiming our theology from white supremacy and Absolutely. looking at some of the embedded values that we have that we may not realize that we have. I think that there are a few ideologies that white evangelicals or white Christians in general hold more closely than others. Mm. That some can be like, sure, individualism, in a pandemic, we can be collective, wear your mask. But I think there's some, like the worship of the written word, defensiveness, and this one that we're going to do today that I think are held a little more closely to the heart of white theology than others um, because they are things that seem life or death. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the sense of urgency or a sense of urgency. And so having worked in what you've worked in and having the life experiences that you have, the reality of white supremacy is that it is generally invisible to those who live in it and who benefit from it. 
And so we're trying to unmask some of those things. And so could you help folks who don't know exactly what this is, what does a sense of urgency look like? What is that? I think when you look at this sense of urgency, it's absolutely right. There's a biblical sense of urgency that we need to be able to have. And I think in scripture, we see the difference between chronos and kairos, right? Chronos is the passage of days, minutes, hours, weeks, months, and years. And kairos is when you have a confluence of events that come together that make for a unique time or season. For the margins for people of color, without question right now, we're in a kairos moment. I think for white evangelicalism, though, they really don't, it doesn't feel like Kairos moments for them. It feels, it doesn't even feel like Kronos. It feels like their sense of urgency is they are losing the country. That uh, this Anglo-Saxon white exceptionalism on which the nation was founded, it is embedded in all of our foundational documents, that the Pilgrims, the Puritans, and the Quakers all believed at different levels when, they, when those convicts got off in boats and came over to America and killed everybody and said, we've discovered this land, it's wonderful. There's the reality that that sense of urgency, they are losing mm -hmm. the nation. And that's, the more you oppress people, the more babies are born. And so, <laughs> there'll just be more children, more people uh, in the United States that are not white by 2040. Mm -hmm. Because of corona, that may be 2025 right now. We're gonna have a corona generation <laughs> here in a little bit. So, um, so I think that's the urgency that they feel, right? It's not an urgency to respond to the times, to engage mm -hmm. in which these social issues that the muck and mire of sin and racism have brought to the surface. It really is this, if we don't act now, we are going to be outnumbered. And I think embedded in that, there is a fear in white culture that even though white culture is always forward thinking, they are not one to, to look backwards, right? When you talk to most white leaders, they're like, oh, I'm really not aware of the past. I know that I want to hire more women. I want to hire more people of color. I want to make sure that we don't have a racist institution. Do you have the historical knowledge of where you came from? Nope, I really don't want to deal with that. I just want to move forward. I think because they are not um, rooted in the past and they're not aware of those things, typically what happens is they come in and it's cyclical and they repeat the same practices they're trying to stop and omit. Uh, and so I think there's this sense of urgency that they're going to be able to lose, they're going to lose the country. And there's yes. a fear that what their ancestors did, that they won't talk about at all. There's a fear that once they're outnumbered, that exact same uh, injustice will happen to them. They're afraid that they will be marginalized. They're afraid that they will be pushed out of the mainstream. And they don't realize that we all are in the mainstream. White people are, black people are, women are, Asian, Latino peoples. And so I think that's a sense of urgency that I'm starting to really feel for them. Um, that's one sense. So it's, it's kind of a, an anti-racist racism. <laughs> they're allergic. It's, it's an anti-blackness racism that's going on right now. Like, they just they want to kind of maintain the status quo is one sense of it. And then you have this other kind of strange kind of sense of urgency right now. And, you know, I, I, I call it like the they're like the the bandwagon social justice activists. Like something has happened like in the last few months because Rona is hit and outside was closed. And there was really only two things to do. And that was watch Tiger King on Netflix and see this cop with his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, or as some reports are saying now the video is longer, it's actually nine and a half minutes. Um, and so there's this sense of urgency, like, oh my God, we had no idea this was happening. If we stand up and we protest in March, we can eliminate this in two weeks. We thought that we solved this problem. And so there's a sense of urgency that racism can be solved um, if they do one or two protests in a couple of cities for a couple of months, we can end this 800-year systemic evil that's embedded in the foundations of our society. Uh, and so I think when you put those two things together, it's just, it's very strange to watch the white responses to all of this that's going on right now. There's a lack of humility uh, that says other people have been engaging in this discussion for centuries, and that the correct posture is to take a listening and a learning one. Um, I love what our friend Erna put uh, on Facebook a couple of weeks ago when she was like, hey, if you're white and you just discovered that racism is real five minutes ago, don't start a podcast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's that that lack of humility. I think that's there. Um, or there is the humility that, you know, they want to be around people of color to listen and learn, but they also want to control the narrative the entire time. And so that that sense of urgency is just it's very strange to behold. And so yes. what do you think, though? What have you noticed? Well, when I think of a sense of urgency in white evangelicalism or in white theology in general, things are urgent when white people feel like they should be urgent, but they're slow when they need yes. to be slow. So Absolutely. we can write a paper about whatever topic we think for whoever we feel like we need to oppress or get in line or manage their sin issues. But we need 500 listening posts and 10 new creedal statements to say that Black Lives Matter. So we can be fast on some things, but we are slow on things all related to justice. 
And to me, I feel like there's a lot of proof for anyone who works in like a church or an evangelical organization right now that we can change fast if we want to. But the reality is that our sense of urgency isn't necessarily about what is right or wrong if we want to use a binary, but it's about what maintains white power, particularly in, in Christian spaces. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is how Christians learn a sense of urgency. Because to me, I think when I, even I don't know, maybe to even loosely define a sense of urgency from my own perspective would just be the fear-based notion that what we do matters more than what God does. And so our speed means God's success. And, and I grew up, I didn't grow up in the church, but insofar as I did, I grew up right in the hot spot of left behind books. Mm, and so when i think about a sense of urgency i think about those where Mm. we think that everyone is going to hell right now so we need to translate as many bibles as possible as quickly as we can and share the bible in in jesus in the most efficient way as possible in the smallest bible track that we can and that we need to do that because everything is life or death and that if we don't do that then everyone will go to hell and we think that what we're doing is saving people from hell but what we're doing is creating these new versions of hell where people Mm -hmm are converted, but they're not discipled. Yep. And so we have a sense of urgency in dealing with specific aspects of people's sin or their engagement with God, but no long-term sense that, I don't know, to be frank, Jesus walked everywhere and he ate a lot mm-hmm. of meals and mm-hmm. he was around for three years and was not super efficient in that time. Yeah. And at the end of his life and death and the beginning of the resurrection, it looked like he had failed. And really, the guys who followed him didn't make him look a lot better for quite some time. And we're not making him look better now. So I just think that there's a lot to the sense of urgency that has clearly shown itself to be historically false in more ways than I can probably articulate well. Oh, that was fantastic. He was here for three years. And let's be honest, he wasn't very efficient with his time. Yes, my God. Absolutely. Way to, like, summarize the Bible at the same time, too. Just expose, like, how we all have been taught, like, with white evangelicalism. Was that Oscar Mirad or Band of 15? If I were God, I would have been in a hurry to save humanity. <laughs> He's like, the way God did it was too slow, too low tech, and too wasteful of time. Yes. God didn't understand marketing or branding or product placement. Like, he just wasted time with Jesus those 30 years. Yes. And then he didn't even do it right with those three years. It feels like I harp on university um, these two and a half years after I've left. And I don't mean to at all. For me, it was just. I think when, you know, I was on staff and I mean, I was, I went into tremendous debt being on staff my, Mm -hmm. my year, every year I was on staff actually with the exception of the last one when I was in a national position, but I signed documents saying that I was willing to take a pay cut. And in hindsight, you know, I realized I was 21, 22 and I drank the Kool-Aid, you know, Mm -hmm. suffer for the sake of the gospel. Yes. And it took me a decade to realize I was suffering and living paycheck to paycheck or me and my best friend were going into credit card debt. Me and my best friend and his now wife and my white colleagues and a number of my Asian colleagues, they're moving into houses and buying Mm -hmm. new cars. And so there's a sense in which suffering looks different for us. And so I think kind of navigating all of those, right, the realities of the funding issues. We had men leave because they didn't think that a woman could be their supervisor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not at a church, at a 501c3. We can have a theological discussion about your denominations, but at a 501c3 nonprofit in america mm-hmm. seriously they left because of that and so intervarsity affirms women in leadership they affirm multi-ethnicity uh, they affirm the fundraising model but you can have someone who's a staunch trump supporter or someone who is quite liberal uh and they may sign a document that says they believe in the authority of scripture but what are they doing to disciple their students is a flip of a coin because we didn't have anything mm-hmm. centralized so those three issues multi-ethnicity women in leadership um uh, and the funding policies but like you said right uh what they did was they came out with a 20-page paper on biblical sexuality, which we didn't even know they were studying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got an email one day, and it was like, we've been praying about this for four years. We have a document on biblical sexuality. By the way, the entire country needs to read it. Uh, we've created a Bible study platform for all of you guys, discussion questions, which you will do at every regional staff conference. And if you don't believe and behave according to it, uh, you have six months to leave staff. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it shocked me because it was a confirmation that precisely what you said, Brandy, right? We can choose if we want to, period. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the galvanizing. That is the litmus test of the evangelical church. They could end all of their racist tendencies. Mm-hmm. I'll give you six months to two years. Just like the Lord's refining fire. We yeah. need to confess. We need to repent. We need to change. It's going to be a long, arduous process, but we can get it done. There is no desire to. There is yeah. a, a, a complete desire to integrate into a burning building. Yes. It is to say it's been wrong for 800 years stick with us 
mm-hmm. and in time. Yes. <laughs> if you're patient on these things, because mm-hmm. we've got some other things that we're urgent about that we care about. Yep. We're losing the country. Uh, women are having abortions. There's too many immigrants coming in. That's the urgency. This whole like racism, multi ethnicity thing. That that can if you stick with us for a while, eventually you'll get your turn. One thing that comes to my mind too is like when Barack I think got elected. Like um, we gave George Bush a bad rap because he was nuts. God bless him. <laughs> But I feel like that was, that was a scenario in which, like, a black person got to be in power. Like, the economy was trash. Like, everything was a hot, horrible mess. There was no coming back, essentially. Yes. And they were like, eh, we'll give the brother a shot. Yes. You know? And I feel like that's the ways in which I think white evangelicalism works. They have to do everything that, that they possibly can. And at their, when they're at their wit's end, intellectually, theologically, economically, mm-hmm. socially, politically, and they're like, we really don't know what to do. Eh. We'll give it to the people of color and see what happens. And if they can repair it, we'll snatch power back uh, yes. because then we're not at the center of the story anymore. Well, and to me, it feels like the metaphor I think of is an old school Netflix queue where you had to like mail the DVDs in. And Ooh. so like you put a DVD in and then you put like 10 before it and you're like, I'm going to get to it eventually. And then it doesn't move off your queue. Like it's mm-hmm. not not important to you. It's not so mm-hmm. unimportant to you that you would get rid of it. And it's nice to have it there in case you want to watch the movie someday but as new movies come out or as things change or as you have something that you want to do more something that's more exciting it just stays at the bottom of the queue and you can still say hey it's in there it's in there and i can see that it's in there like can't you Mm -hmm. see that it's in there Mm -hmm. while all the while prioritizing every other possible thing every strategy every ministry development rather than doing the justice that we might say especially in this political moment that we're in that we might want to do yeah And it feels significant to me as I watch the current political moment we're in and what a lot of people are just calling performative activism, especially from churches. The churches who four years ago would not have, if the Lord came down and told them God's self that it was happening, said Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. But when it became financially and socially inappropriate to no longer say it, we became very urgent about how we wanted to speak about that. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm seeing, you know, churches putting black squares in their social media and deciding to have a four-week series on race as though four weeks and a Gandalf staff of um, (laughs) anti-racism. Can I pass? (laughs) Thank God racism's over now. We just needed Bethel to do it. Yeah, that's right, boy. That was fantastic, huh? God. Piper's done another podcast. Now it's solved. No, Man, I just not. wish that black people would have thought of Gandalf sooner. Huh? <laughs> if only we had followed white male God in that way. But hey, it does hey. feel like uh, there's suddenly this sense of urgency, but it seems incredibly motivated by reputation and by yeah. money more so than by justice and righteousness and mercy Absolutely. and compassion. And I think what it has revealed to me, which I think I already knew, but is now, I think it's a it was a hypothesis and now there's a lot of data for it, yeah. is that A lot of white theology teaches us that surface level behavior modification is the goal, like the end goal of discipleship, Mm -hmm. but it's rarely about a deeper transformation that actually deals with the roots of our issues and the things Mm -hmm. that we're dealing with. And I don't think that's just race. I think that applies to mental health and to family and to sex and dating and to all Mm -hmm. of those things. But we, if we can do the surface level behavior modification, even of ourselves, if we can say Black Lives Matter, then we feel like we're good. Or if we can put in one bible study or book group or read austin channing brown then suddenly we are we are changing the world and so i think i just i feel like some of the sense of urgency early in my life was used to used to scare me out of hell Mm. and then the same fear was used to scare me out of sinning and so i'm Mm. curious if you've thought about where do we pull this sense of urgency out what are the things that you see that are used to make this happen okay so without question i think in terms of conversion i think a white theology focuses far more on Pauline's experience on the Damascus Road as mm-hmm. opposed to the 12, right? There's this sense in which um, Jesus walked with them for three years and it was a gradual transformation. And like you said earlier, they still didn't get it. Like they, that brother fed 5,000 people. He raised the dead. He did a bunch of stuff, healed everybody and their mama. Uh, everywhere he went, like sin did not contaminate him. Like he eradicated it everywhere. And they missed it the entire time. He dies. They miss it. He gets up, they miss it. He flies away, they miss it. <laughs> he pulls a Superman off a cliff, you know? They miss it still. But that's that focus is not given, I think, in white evangelicalism. It's given Paul perspective, right? If you have one conversation with someone, they can get saved. Mm-hmm. If you explain the Romans Road, the bridge diagram, or the four circles, or whatever new 10-minute metaphor it is right now, they can get saved immediately. 
Yeah. And then, like, you know, you send them back out into the mission field. It's like, I, I mean, you don't even join a gym in 10 minutes. Like, what are you talking about? So you want, like, you want, like, a complete life transformation from somebody from one conversation with you? Like, this? no, absolutely not. So I think that that's definitely one element. I think I think it's the way in which they try to, they don't do it directly, but indirectly how Paul is pitted against Jesus. I think how you see Romans is used as the basis for Paul's theology and that we are saved by faith, not by works. Mm-hmm. And so that obviously is a very individualistic mindset. And so mm-hmm. when you teach that we are saved by faith, not by works, and that becomes, I think, the impetus for you to go out and evangelize and to be missional and it feeds into that mediocre white man myth, right? That like you have all power and that you can go out and change the world in your lifetime, Mm -hmm. regardless of whose land it is, who's been here before, what issues are going on or the culture that is present. You have, (laughs) you, what did Sarah Kudigawa say? (laughs) Me plus Jesus equals I can solve your problems. That's also the definition for imperialism, right? (laughs) That is like, yeah, she's a beast. Like that's, that's white evangelicalism. Um, and, you know, saved by faith, not by works is, I don't think that's at the core of, um, mm-hmm. of Paul's theology. I think at the core of Paul's theology is unity in Christ. Yes. And that, because um, if it's unity in Christ, that's communal, that's social, mm-hmm. that's cultural. You have to deal with all of the problems yes. between ethnic groups, between men and women, ag- ag- again, I mean, with uh, different classes. You deal with all of the issues that are going on in the Western world mm-hmm. they refuse to tackle. So yes. I think if I had to guess, I would say that they're fascinated by Paul because Paul was a deep thinker and the idol of the West is intellectualism. So they're fascinated by his writings mm-hmm. uh, incorrectly. I think they're fascinated by his conversion. Yes. Uh, and there are some Paul exceptions, but he's he's the exception. He's not the norm. Yes. And there's this sense in which, like, um, if I can make my faith individualistic, mm-hmm. then... I can go to bed at night because I've done my part to talk to one person about their personal life and internal work. Yes. Um, there was one guy that um, I have a friend of mine here in Austin that um, is a missionary. He's an university alum and uh, happily married. Went on a mission trip to Mexico for four years. I love this Mexican woman. Got married. Came back to the States. Got three beautiful children. And uh, he's a white guy. Loves the Lord. Passionate about multi-ethnicity and racial reconciliation stuff. And, you know, we've just... Most of us have either unfriended or unfollowed the conservative white evangelicals for our own mental and emotional yes. health, right? Yes. Like uh, the parking lot for white spaces is full, as yep. Erna often says in yep. our lives. And so Adam has been like, I said his name, whatever. Adam has been like trying to still talk to, I think, white people about these things. And there's a friend of his that he was like, I'm trying to explain systemic and structural racism to him. But Sean, would you come with me? And I said, no. I don't have level one conversations with white people anymore. Yep. And I most certainly don't have them for free. It is emotionally exhausting to pour out your heart and to share, you know, your life yes. experience. And then someone to say, nah, I haven't seen that, so I don't believe it's true, yeah. and walk off. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I was like, we're not doing this for free anymore. And so I arbitrarily was like, I charge $125 an hour to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Throughout a random number, he told his friend, friend talked to his wife, and they said yes. <laughs> and so I went over to this man's house last week. Brandy talked to him for two hours. Uh, and the first hour was us just kind of sharing our stories, and the second hour was like he just like he literally said, "I just want to get to know you. I'm really not interested, kind of in like understanding systemic and structural racism. I have a couple of questions. If we get to it, fine. If we don't, that's okay. Like even knowing the mm-hmm. reason why we were meeting, he still reduced it to an individualistic level, mm-hmm. and I felt myself getting upset on his couch, and then I realized he's paying for my time." If yeah. he chooses to have a hard heart or to not be open to that, it's okay. Yeah. My time was not wasted because I got a seed sown into me for this. Yes. Um, and so it's it's strange to witness and to behold, even when they say, I want to learn about these things. Yes. In that moment, you still see them opt into whiteness to say, nope, I'm going to keep it at the individual level, both yes. in our conversations and when we look at issues that are clearly systemic and structural police officer does something horrible yeah. what is this police chief going to do what is the district attorney going to do yeah. what is the judge and uh, the jury going to do how is it going to be portrayed in mainstream media and politicians let's not talk about that mm-hmm. i want to know about you where did you come from how many white friends do you have yep and it's just, it's very strange so what do you what do you notice though what's going on for you well, it feels like in in that story that you're sharing is a broader a broader thing that i see happen all the time which is that White folks want to d- learn to do anti-racism theoretically, but without abandoning whiteness as a concept. Mm-hmm. And so in that story, he can be like, I want to learn about systemic oppression, but then his cultural values so lead the conversation 
that yeah. it collapses the conversation into something that where it cannot do the thing. Exactly. And so it feels like every attribute of white supremacy buttresses the entire institution of whiteness to have those conversations where you spend two hours that could be, to use a white value of efficiency, very productive or helpful. You have to wade through so many depths of whiteness to even get to how do we mm -hmm. undo a couple of these things. And because there's a sense of urgency to respond right now in this moment around racism specifically, white folks want to do that urgently and just get it over with. When yes. to undo 800 years of systemic oppression, violence, theology, and all of that cannot be done in one conversation with a black man, no matter how much you pay him. And so it just mm -hmm. feels like, and I think this is true for those of us, um, those of us folks of color who are in predominantly white spaces, we might be confused into believing that if some, if a response doesn't happen immediately, that it's not holy or that it's not spiritual or that it's not Jesus because yeah. God can blind Paul. And so I think that that yeah. is really significant. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is how people use, and how I've used, I, I say people, but I, as a person who's yeah. worked in whiteness for my whole life and was educated at an overly expensive private liberal arts college, I recognize the privilege in what I'm saying and that like, there, there are so many stories that I think we use in scripture that we don't know are embedding a sense of urgency, but are. Mm -hmm. I think about Matthew 25 and the parable of the virgins at the wedding mm -hmm. and where the metaphors that like, don't you know that the kingdom of God will come in a, like a thief in the night? That's I think mm -hmm. in First Thessalonians. Ooh, and, uh, ours was a Luke 10 and 2. I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. Luke uh, 10 and 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Send har the workers into the harvest field. Like that was, that was like the mandate that we did for leaders every August when yes. students are coming back on campus. In John 4, we have this story where Jesus, where the story tells us first that Jesus has to go through Samaria to get from Judea to Gal, or from Galilee to Judea. And mm -hmm. If you do any cultural work around that, that is inherently not true. Jesus does not have to go through Samaria. No Jewish person has to go through Samaria for nothing. Mm -mm. And no one, and people wouldn't, right? In in, cleansly, in cleanliness laws, in ethnocentrism, and all of that wouldn't have to do that. And so the text even starts by going, Jesus had to, in quote, do this thing, had to go through Samaria. And so you already know that Jesus is taking this inefficient for the cultural time route from one place to another. And then he stops at this place and he has this overly long conversation with this woman who was an outsider who the disciples yeah. are sitting from a distance judging. And then Jesus is like, why don't y'all just go away and get some food? Like, y'all walk away. You're too sexist for your own good. Y'all go away, go get some fried chicken. I'm actually going to talk to her because yeah. I need to like have her in the kingdom. Yes. And they're like, come on, let's go. Let's go. Like, <laughs> what, what? Like, come on. And Jesus has this, this transformative experience with this woman where he reaffirms her dignity and does all of this stuff and then he sends her back to her town which is presumably relatively far away and on his like 200 kilometer walk from judea to galilee does this situation where he sends her away and then waits and then the disciples are like come on come on come on let's go mm. and he waits for him for her to bring her whole town back and when the disciples are asking about this jesus just seems unbothered it seems like his priority isn't this urgent movement it is to talk to a person long enough to see them healed and yes. to let their community be healed because they are healed. And so there's yes. a systemic healing that is being brought as Jesus does this thing, but we use this harvest is plentiful, workers are few. You think it's four months till the harvest, but open your eyes and look up. They are ripe for harvest. And I'm like, sure, something can be ripe for harvest. It doesn't mean it's yours to reap. Yeah, as I think as I'm listening to you too, I remember, uh, you know, Bishop Tony Warner, who's on Sabbath and Varsity and just uh, really patriarch of bcm in many respects and so i was talking to him last week with the passing of john lewis and just trying to get his opinion and just our processes like what was going on in my own internal world so i am like in tears as i'm realizing this man has passed away and uh, i'm seeing just the flood of responses from every black person mm, yep. <laughs> everybody put up memes and photos of this man and i was like what is going on right now so i called bishop just to have a conversation with him and we were talking about all of that, but I still have to be able to say, I remember having a conversation with him about white evangelicalism and this, this, at the time I didn't use that language, but the sense of urgency now and just like what was going on. And you know, like you were saying too, like, um, want to see things change immediately in university, um, and in white evangelicalism, even at Fuller Seminary as well too. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just not seeing those things happen and Bishop, you know him, he would just smile and nod and listen to me. And he said, Sean, the evangelicals have taught us wrong. He said, they taught us that we can change all of it in three simple steps. If you do these three mm -hmm. things, it'll go away. You can change all of it in your lifetime. He said, Israel waited 400 years for Moses. 
and we misunderstand the timing of God. We assume that, like you said, our timing is God's timing. God doesn't operate in our world. We operate in his. If intellectualism is one of the idols of white supremacy and Christianity-ism, as Carl Ellis calls it, like this white supremacy that's hiding inside of Christianity or a fake version of Christianity, mm-hmm. I would say probably this this false sense of urgency or this mislabeled urgency on some things but not kingdom things, I think easily is the second one. There is this notion that if they don't do it in their lifetime, it cannot and it will not be done. Uh, but it's on all those things that are secondary, right? It's not It's not on issues of love and justice and reconciliation yeah. uh, and bringing healing to the nation, right? It's, it's a sense of urgency, otherwise the economy will crash mm-hmm. or the church that you just built won't have enough members, so you'll run out of money. Yeah. Um, or we'll lose the country because we'll be overrun by immigrants. Like, it's not, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, these things yeah. are not they're not biblical like it's yeah. it's whiteness at work it's the idols of your own culture that because y'all have never been displaced on purpose you don't even know that they're idols and yep. you are discipling that into everyone when you go on these mission trips um so that uh, people come back and they're colonized in their own theology and they've been educated out of their context so when they get degrees and they go back home their words and their theology it doesn't mean anything it's irrelevant yes irrelevant and alienating to every person who's been around before them. And it's almost always young people who are sent back with that sense of urgency. Yeah. Like, cause I think the university context does that too. Like creates a sense of urgency that you must become what you're going to be for the rest of your life right now. Yeah. And I think that Christians do that by breaking salvation or like the outer working of our faith or our conversion, the outer working of our faith moment by moment mm-hmm. into a single moment that encapsulates the, that somehow is the most important moment of your life instead of walking the journey with Jesus. And so I think I see this play out in a lot of different ways, because I think there's ways that it plays out theologically, but I think that theology, when you truncate it down and put it like in a church office, plays out in some very specific ways that I think a lot of folks are probably more familiar with than maybe they're aware of. Mm. Like the idea that we would create unrealistic goals in the name of God's bigness that are to be done in an unrealistic amount of time. Oh, yes. Like that we can grow our church from 30 people to 500 people in one year because we want to have a quote unquote revival. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know what y'all are trying to revive out here, but I think I'd rather leave it dead at this point. Uh, look. <laughs> what we end up doing is we glorify these one off experiences of someone's success and or success or colonizing of a space in a really effective way, like a church plant yep. that pulls all of the black people from their church to create like a sexy new experience because there's yep. something, because we've been so indoctrinated into whiteness that we think that that's the better thing and it's now available. We create unsustainable ministry methods. We try to reduce people's gifts into something that can be efficiently white manned. And so I, mm-hmm. one of the things I've been thinking about lately as I consider this concept is what books were elevated in my early time in church and in ministry and the ones that come to mind most quickly are Multiply by Francis Chan. Say what you will about Francis Chan, but I think that whiteness almost always has one or two token folks of color who make it make it in like white Christianity yeah. who mm-hmm. that are the mouthpieces for whiteness in a particular mm-hmm. way. So, so you can point to them as like, oh, this isn't white. This is universal. This is Christ when it's really just mm-hmm. folks of color who've been embedded into whiteness. But all that said, like his book Multiply, David Platt's Radical, and then what was that book... Um, Oh, Exponential. Everybody and their brother had a copy of the book Exponential. And what it said was that church growth or like the growth of the kingdom was about us indoctrinating people, do a little popcorn effect to do more people, to get more people. And if you have 10 million small groups in your church, then you have 10 million people in your church and you can do it in six weeks. And so I think there's just these unrealistic expectations that are put on human beings to pursue things in the world that were never meant for us to do. And so I'm thinking yeah. about all of these ways. So I'm, I was wondering if there are any ways that you can think of that we see this play out really closely on the ground. Brandy, I can't follow that. That was <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to follow that at all, girl. Good. How do we see it play out on the ground? No, I um I remember I went to um there's a preachers conference in Dallas uh, that I went to and there's a guy named uh Dr. James Earl Massey who's gone on to be with the Lord, but he was actually we were having a random conversation about this. I think I was in his his classroom, his class where they're preaching the doctrines of sin and grace, uh, which at that time I knew nothing about doctrines at all. Just hadn't been to seminary yet. I was the Greek and Hebrew was something I was trying to avoid, which is why yeah. I hadn't been to seminary at all. He picked, I will never forget, he picked a random passage, uh, and it was like Jesus said, "If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself." 
and Dr. James Earl Mass, he just went on this tangent. He's like, why are we doing all these conferences on like church growth and church planting? If we just preach Jesus and not just preach Jesus, but preach what Jesus preached, mm-hmm. people will come to our churches. Yes. You don't have to like build a big building and have all these fancy bells and whistles and strobe lights and compete with a movie theater. If we preach Jesus and preach what he preached, your church will grow. And the reasons why, yeah, somebody asked, like, how do I get my church to grow? And he's like, if you're not preaching what Jesus preached, that's why your church is not mm-hmm. growing. Because Jesus is attractive. Real yes. Jesus is attractive. It's interesting you you mentioned those books. Like, I, we had Out of the Shalt Sacred into the World. Mm-hmm. We had Master Plan of Evangelism. But it was always this idea. I know, I remember, like, when I was on staff, they were always pushing for us to be able to do small groups uh, when I was a student. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful value of, like, small group Bible study. It's biblical. It's healthy and blah, 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 blah and all those things. But it was colonizing because I would I was there um, and I remember when they were pushing for when we were students and it may have worked for one year, but you have to start all over because small groups isn't just not a model in the black church. We are a communal culture and, you know, a church service is a giant small group. And so when I came on staff, like most of the discipleship models that were coming out, they were all small group oriented. And then the content, the information that was in there, it had to be contextualized for my students because Billy and Becky were going on a missions trip to like, you know. Ghana and my students were like what is this well one of the things that I've been thinking about is that well I've been thinking about how in scripture a message can be slow but the action taken Mm -hmm. we make very fast like when I think about I think about even like really silly stories like well it's not a silly story it's a deeply tragic story but we make it silly by putting it on felt board but of Noah in the ark but Noah receives this message that has urgent implications but it takes him a long ass time to build in his front yard Yes, and so people, I think what we do is we hear a message and we assume that that message is for mm-hmm. us right now in this moment. And to me, it kills mm-hmm. critical thinking. And so it becomes ironic because in a lot of white spaces, we might pride ourselves or they might pride themselves on being critical and intellectual. But a sense of urgency makes it almost impossible to be inclusive at all, to be thoughtful in our decision making or thinking and what it usually does is it just punts all important projects to one charismatic leader or one new strategy or one new thing that we want to try to do and we do that without considering the consequences to anybody and then we feel suddenly very offended and upset when people don't Mm -hmm. appreciate what we did or when it doesn't go well or when we didn't think about that one little thing like the colonizing impacts of our work and so I'm just aware that there's lots of things like that or even in any kind of church funding models or fundraising models that we have unrealistic funding yeah. proposals that they promise a lot of work and a lot of numbers mm-hmm. and a lot of conversions and are controlled by funders who feel the same oh, yeah. sense of urgency. And then people expect supervisors, staff, pastors, leaders expect way too much work for way too little funding. And like in your case, mm-hmm. impoverished people. And in my mm-hmm. case, impoverished people for the sake yep. of the mission that then doesn't go the way it's supposed to because we overpromise and we underdeliver because that to me feels like the primary consequence of a sense of urgency is that we overpromise yeah. and underdeliver over and yeah. over and over again or we overexpect and then overcriticize and then alienate. So I don't know. I'm just thinking about those things. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And my brain turned back on too. Like I think um, that sense of urgency, the things that we see on the ground. I remember when um, I left South and I've been a member of this uh, black church here in Austin for six years and i went to speak at end of varsity student chapter and uh totaled my car on the way back and my funding was so bad i couldn't get reimbursed for the gas mileage and i remember i called my pastor at the time and i was like how you feel about interns and he said i love them i said how you feel about paid interns he said i'm not really sure i said never mind mm. and he said no 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 no, no. We'll, pay you. we'll pay you we'll pay you we'll pay you so i came on staff uh, at this church and there's a culture of burnout he had a temper he would curse us out in the staff meetings you know as a member it's great you peek behind the curtain you meet the wonderful wizard of oz mm-hmm. in most spaces if it's not healthy you'll find out very quickly and yes. so which is why i wasn't there long but i remember he got burnt out for like the third or fourth time and when he came back from what was supposed to be a season of rest he came back uh, with these eight great causes that there were eight things that he wanted to um a staff team of three people had quit. So a staff team of nine, and there were eight great causes, including himself, his secretary, uh, and uh, the business administrator or the accountant for the church. Nine of us, eight great causes. And it was like fatherlessness, um, poverty. Um, uh, it's been so long. It was, I mean, it was just, it was just 
but they all had like strategic plans under all of them. Yeah. And we were like, how are we going? How are, how are nine people going to tackle homelessness in the city? What? How exactly do we tackle fatherlessness? You know, how exactly do we tackle um, economic empowerment and entrepreneurship? These are all great ideas. Um, can we have like one or two? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to juggle all eight at the same time? And mm-hmm. we had to juggle all eight at the same time, which does what? Creates a culture of burnout yes. when you don't do those things. He's angry and livid because he had two ideals in his head. One, the mega church in Dallas that he came from and the really affluent white church in the suburbs, mm-hmm. who also has eight great causes, but also because of racism and gentrification and white flight. They've got 15,000 members or they've got 10,000 members mm-hmm. and white people tied. So they've got 10,000 members yep. and like, you know, $30 million sitting in the bank. Yep. yep. And they all have multiple properties. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the church sits on like 25 acres of land. There's a lake and a community yeah. center <laughs> yeah. that they go and like reflect so they can hear from the Lord or the pastor goes on these retreats and he's writing books every six months. He's got an income coming in. But that's how we were comparing ourselves to. I think it's one way we see it on the ground. Like you just, you don't just see these models of urgency and intellectualism. I think in the white church, it also is outsourced and it's colonized to people of color. And Mm -hmm. the model in not all, but some churches from the margins, it is not a biblical model anymore. The model from the churches from the margins is white church, right? We take their resources. We take their books. We dip it in chocolate and say it's contextualized. But the end result is still the same, right? In the same way that you've got this white exodus from the white church right now with the kids saying, we're done. The black church doesn't have exodus as bad, but definitely the numbers are starting to go down because there's, yep. again, right, this sense of urgency around, oh, abortion and homosexuality. It's like we've got, we have school shootings here every 10 minutes and no yep. one has done anything about that. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, we've had the longest war that we've had in the history of the country. Yep. Nobody's doing anything about that. These unarmed black people have been killed, black and brown men and women have been killed in the country for decades and we have not solved this but yes. y'all sense of urgency is around go share the gospel uh provide yep. a, a hypodiegetical understanding of your theology yep so that way you can demonstrate you've you've got a robust scholarship um yep. <laughs> from your evangelical <laughs> yep. institution you know like people no we don't care about this stuff so i mean it's one of the ways in which i think the urgency um play out it's outsourced and it's contextualized and i think yes. black churches are trying to do that exact same thing and I wish we would, I wish we would like know our church history and we would like learn from Germany. Like we, we talk about St. Augustine and how great and how wonderful he was and how he wrote all these things and how he stood up, you know, um, and uh, you've got like all these different German theologians that have, that came out of there in the 1700s and 1800s. And like, you know, a century or two later, Germany gave us Hitler mm-hmm. in the world right now, but we still read their books. And so... I think there's some sense in which if we had a true sense of urgency, it's like where where did Europe and these countries that they say we have to study, if we're going to study them, let's study them critically to say where did they go yes. off track? That yes. needs to be our sense of urgency because yes. we're on the same road that they were on. And that means we're going to end up in the same place that we were. And that's we are. We don't have a Christian nation, but we're going to have a far more unchristian nation than we dreamed yes. possible, I think, from yes. following that same line of thinking and reasoning. Well, and that feels inevitable when a sense of urgency makes our theology or maybe not our theology but our practical theology the thing that we live out mitigate sin pay the bills convert and get more people yep because that kind of that's what it to me that's what it ends up boiling down to and we might have like these glimpses of life transformation and that's great and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna shit on people's lives being transformed but i am very suspicious of a type of spirituality that produces all of the things that you're talking about and and i think that what we're seeing right now in our country I'm not even gonna say our country. I think what we're seeing right now in the United States, because this ain't never been our country. <laughs> I'm from Wakanda. I'm, yeah. <laughs> what I'm <laughs> what I'm seeing in the U.S. right now is the overflow of ministry that was born out of a sense of urgency. Yeah. When I think about Billy Graham revivals and the mm-hmm. quote unquote revival movements of mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. the '60s through the mid '80s, mm-hmm. it was all rallies and these giant events where you get a ton of people into a room, you create an emotional experience altar call. in a couple of hours. You do an altar call, you count the numbers, and then all of those people consider themselves Christian. But the call that you're doing isn't necessarily just a call to follow Jesus; it's a call to follow Jesus into whiteness. And mm-hmm. if you don't do that and you sin in the wrong way and you do the wrong things, then you're no longer Christian. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. Donald Trump, in my opinion, is a direct result. Donald Trump being elected by 
white evangelicals is a direct result of the sense of urgency that converts but doesn't disciple, that mm. calls people in but doesn't do anything to keep them in, that mm-hmm. exploits people like capitalism exploits everything, yep. and then throws them out the door and then calls them unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like what we're saying is that a sense of urgency isn't great. <laughs> it hasn't done a lot <laughs> of good for us. It seems mm. like it has sacrificed creativity for the sake of efficiency. Then yeah. I think one of the things that I hear in the subtext of a lot of what we're saying is that it ejects people who don't fit into the models of leadership or strategy that we want to embody. It doesn't create any space to do anything that doesn't feel like it's a part of the ultimate goal. And it makes everything that's justice related an elective mm-hmm. side project rather than the yeah. center of what God is up to in the world. And I just feel like we lose so much in that. And it just feels like we're reliving manifest destiny in our churches over and over and over and over again, assuming that like God, glory and gold are going to be the things that we get. That will be the demonstration of our faithfulness. And so as we close up, what is the other way? Is there another way that isn't just the sense of urgency? I, I think that there is, I think that there is a sense of urgency, but I think it's a sense of urgency that's not rooted in whiteness. Um, like, I think when we first even started the conversation, you kind of sent me the notes of like, hey, here's what we're going to talk about. And I was like, a sense of urgency. Yeah, I have been on this quest the last two years is to decolonize my mind. And so I try to not um, default or to think immediately about white spaces or white evangelicalism or whiteness in any capacity. Um, I'm trying to get back to the time where I was before Intervarsity, right? That when John Piper wrote something racist or sexist, I didn't know about it. So, <laughs> you know, and so like he comes with a verse and he's like, he writes something like abysmally, like just closed minded on racism or just something that's just very misogynistic. And it's like, oh, I can't believe. And Piper's having a discussion about this. And he wrote a book and I'm like, I'm not going to read it. I don't care. And so yep. I'm trying to get back there. And so I think a sense of urgency again, you know, John Lewis um, just passed away. And I remember there's a there's a picture of him and a quote, his quotes behind him. And he said, if not us, then who? And mm, if not mm-hmm. now, then when? Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. King's um, uh, now is the time or why we can't yes. wait. Right. Yes. Like you have these voices from the margins that say, no, there is a sense of urgency. People are dying. Um, people are dying because of white supremacy. They're dying because of their own sin issues. They're committing suicide. Uh, I think we just had um, uh, Tamar Braxton, right? So she just got rushed to the hospital a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. This woman, she's a beautiful woman. She's highly successful. She is in a wealthy family. Uh, what in the world is going on in her own internal worlds, her own self-worth that would say that the end result of where, or her own mental state that says that the best option she has right now is to take her own life. What does the gospel have to say about that? Where is the church mm-hmm. in the midst of those things? Because she is not alone. We have seen an increase, I think, in the realities of um, suicide taking place. The Me Too movement is real. Like the mm-hmm. men are being called to account. We know patriarchy is real, real, and every place where there is patriarchy, women are oppressed in frightening numbers, including mm-hmm. sexual assaults. Um, and you had this monster in Jeffrey Epstein that went unchecked. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew about it for decades. There's another Jeffrey Epstein right now. There's another one right now. There's multiple of them right now on the earth, probably in this country and in different parts of the world. And we are not dealing with those issues. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some sense of actual urgency that's coming, but yes. it's not coming from white spaces. And I think what's happening is we have these two competing or concurring waves and they're brushing up against each other. You have yes. this urgency of whiteness and intellectualism, like you were talking about, like we've been talking about this entire time. And then you have this urgency from the margins, right? From black people and from brown people and from women um, and from the LGBTQIA community, right? They're saying like, no, there's, we live in two different Americas and mm-hmm. the only urgency that I'm going to respond to with a sense of my time and my life and my energy and my mental focus is around bringing justice to everybody else that white people have experienced overwhelmingly and have denied to everyone else. And mm-hmm. so I think the other way is it's we have to decolonize our minds and mm-hmm. we have to do what we have been asking white people to do. And that is sit up under authors of color especially women women of color authors of color and i, I always start with indigenous peoples because i'm like yes everybody shut up <laughs> yeah yep. indigenous peoples they have diplomatic immunity like if they are in the room they are the captains yep you sit down you shut up black rage is secondary to them like we're Amen. standing on their <laughs> land like you know so let's get that out of the way i think we've got to be able to humble ourselves and listen to the voices at the margins because as we've seen throughout history 
from Africa and all the countries that exist in the motherland up and uh, here as well to the black community, the black diaspora is the prophetic voice of the world. We've got to recognize uh, there are some things that are equally urgent and important. It's mm-hmm. not coming out of white spaces. And so I think we've got to pull the ship over, um, humble ourselves and listen to the ancestors and these voices from the margins mm-hmm. yes. because they remind us that we're not crazy. Um, yes. We live in a world where men are sexually assaulting women. We live in a world where people are dying every day. We've got a global pandemic that has not stopped. Those are urgent and important things yes. that are worthy of our best mental energies and focuses. And I'm not going to say if we know that white evangelicalism is refusing to acknowledge and address those things. So mm-hmm. like I've been trying to do the last two years, stop listening to them fools. Um, like mm-hmm. I, like I, uh, this is where everybody's going to like laugh at me for days. I don't know who Louis Giglio is. Yeah. I, I just, I have no Plus idea who that man is. Like, I don't, I ain't never, I don't know if his voice is high pitched. I don't know if it's low. I don't, I don't know if he sings, preaches, whatever. I know nothing about this man. I didn't even see the interview with him and um, and Lecrae, an old dude from Chick-fil-A. I didn't watch it. I woke up in my decolonized space. You didn't. But just about every other person of color I know who navigates white spaces was just, I cannot believe Louis Giglio has said these things. He called white privilege a white blessing and the blessing of slavery and blah, 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 blah. And I was just, I wrote that Facebook post. I was like, y'all stop being mad at this man or stop being surprised. Yeah. Like. I think that's the gift that we give to ourselves. Stop stop being surprised at the false narrative of urgency that is coming out of whiteness right mm-hmm. now. We have got to recognize yes. that and call a spade by what it is. Yes. Uh, when someone shows you who they really are, you believe them. Believe and them. I think it's it's time that we believed white evangelicals for their values, the contributions <laughs> that they give to the kingdom, but then also the foolishness that they've tried to inject into all of us and just say, you can keep it and yes. keep moving, you know? So. Yeah, and I think circling back to the very beginning of our conversation where you were talking about the difference between Kairos and Kronos time, it feels like we have to recognize and learn to recognize Kairos time. That in scripture, Kairos time is almost always moments where people are being abysmally oppressed Mm -hmm. and God is saying, it is over. Something is happening and my people need to change. Mm. And I think part of my unlearning of this sense of urgency is unlearning the sense that I grew up with in white spaces that all time is is Kairos time. Yeah. That anytime we feel a, just a little prick in our heart for somebody across the world or whatever, that that's somehow Kairos time. That Kairos time is not an individualistic thing. It is a communal effort toward the good of the world. Yeah. And like, I don't need someone, I don't need like the gales of the world telling me that it's Kronos time because she feels sad in her heart because someone's houseless. Like we need to, to deal with houselessness. You know, like we need to do it when it's time. It sounds like what you're asking us to do in some ways is to know the difference between Kairos and Kronos time mm-hmm. and to not waste our time listening to white evangelicalism lie to itself over and over again and lie to us over and over again about who it is and who they are. Yes. Because if Donald Trump has taught us anything, it's that white evangelical Christianity has no problem publicly being exactly who they are. Exactly. And so maybe the goal is let's believe them. Yeah. And be free in Jesus name. Like call it a day. Like I am not, I don't lose sleep over it anymore. I'm like, you have shown us who you are and what you value. Like I don't, there's, their witnesses compromise like for the rest of my life um, yeah. without repentance. Like there's, yes. there's nothing that I think someone can say in that capacity. Like there's, I remember there's this, um, there's this video of this drunk white family on Facebook. This is like probably about six months after he got elected. And there's a white lady and the caption's like, my atheist aunt is like taking the family to task. And she's she's drunk. You can look at it and tell like she's speech is slurred the whole nine. But she says, um, y'all are supposed to be Christians. Y'all have been telling me to follow Jesus for years. And you voted for somebody that was endorsed by a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. You have to reconcile that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I don't because I didn't vote for him. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's the rocks crying out. That's the yep. margins crying out saying, you have shown us who you are. And now we believe you. And now yes. we know we need to drink from a different well. Even if we have yes. to dig it ourselves, there is a better way to live. We have yes. read the books. We've gone to the conferences. We've listened to the sermons. And we have been ignored. Our parents were ignored. Yes. Our grandparents were ignored. Our ancestors were. Mm-hmm. And we will be ignored no longer. If we have yes. to do it ourselves, we will. Um, and that's the... It's a road that is not um, easily trotted. I'm mean, like, this. Yeah. it's 
it's the narrow gate, right? I mean, it's the narrow mm-hmm. path. Um, but we don't have a choice. I don't. We're not going to survive. I think in the twenty first century, if we don't do it, um, no. we have got to do our own due diligence. And I think John the Baptist preached in the wilderness, and so we've got to be willing to leave the city and get away from everything and actually hear from the Lord. Because I don't know what's going on, but this this ain't the kingdom. This, this is, is not, not the promised it. land. <laughs> this is so. not it. Well, Sean, feel like we've probably sufficiently overwhelmed the vast majority of people in our world with them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that uh, we've given people a lot to think about. But Sean, I've so appreciated having you on today. Is there anything you want to plug? Where can people find you on you know the internet since we ain't trying to find nobody in real life right now? I know, right? Uh, or I'm not in... real life, physical life. You know, the life yeah, we're living is right. real. Uh... Yeah, just nobody breathe on you because COVID is real. Um, yes. I'm on Twitter. Uh, Sean is fearless. S-E-A-N is fearless. And then, like I said, uh, August 3rd, I will join uh, the Be The Bridge team. I'll become their director of training and strategy. So you can go to bethebridge.com, and I probably will have a photo and a bio up there here pretty soon. So they'll definitely be able to find me and check me out on those spaces. So Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean. Appreciate having Brandy, you on. A joy and a privilege. I'm always grateful to listen with and learn from you, my friend. Uh, it is the same. It's a great honor. Thanks for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you like what you hear and want to contribute to making it happen, you can join us on Patreon. Just $5 a month gets you extra content, and there are other perks at different levels too, but, you know, do whatever you want. I just appreciate you all believing in this project as much as I enjoy making it. So, with that, let's do what we always do, and as we learn, try to do a little bit better together.